Istanbul 74 presents How Can We All Make It Into the Future? 74 podcast series. On the podcast, we discuss the global pandemic we're currently facing and how it'll reshape our reality and society with opinion leaders and creative minds from all over the world. Let's explore together what the future might bring for us. I'm here with Gerfried Stocker, who is the director of Ars Electronica. My name is Edward Schenken. I'm an art historian at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Yes, hello also. I'm, I'm Gerfried Stocker. It's a really great honor and a really wonderful opportunity to be here uh, in this, be part of this podcast series in particular to have the opportunity to talk with Edward, whose work I'm really admiring and following since many years. So I'm really looking forward to an exciting talk. Well, thank you, Gerfried. I've been following your work for many years also, and Ars Electronica has played a really significant role in my development as a scholar. And it's always a pleasure to speak with you and see what's going on at Ars Electronica. So I look forward to our conversation. I mean, one of the one of the questions I'm interested in is, is the future of Ars Electronica and the future of, of electronic arts in general. And I know that one of the sort of themes of the 2019 40th anniversary of Ars Electronica was um, this idea of being at midlife, the midlife <laughs> yeah. crisis. Um, where do we go from here? Um, another... And from midlife crisis to a corona crisis. Yeah. <laughs> um, in the late 60s, Robert Rauschenberg and Billy Kluver, the founders of EAT, said that mm -hmm. the success of EAT could be measured by the extent to which the organization had become redundant. In other words, that um, engineers and artists were working with each other already, so there didn't need to be an institution dedicated to doing that anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and so as um, electronic and digital art, new media and bio art become increasingly woven into contemporary art practice and exhibition institutions in general, what is the role of an or of an institution, an exhibition space, production space, education space like Ars Electronica. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, that's fine for me. I have plenty to say. Yeah, <laughs> no, and I think that that's really change these, these ideas with you. Yeah, these are juicy questions. I think, mm -hmm. um, and then we can. I mean, that historical stuff, of course, is really interesting to me. I've written a lot about that, including. <laughs> Robert Adrian's World of 24 Hours yeah. in 1982 and um, Roy Ascas, La Plisur du Texte in 83 and mm -hmm. um, The World According to Gaia, which was at Ars Electronica and whenever that was. Uh, 87, I think, uh -huh. as far as I remember, yeah, or 88. Cool. Well, we have plenty to talk but, about. But I think that's anyway better if we like talk about the future role. Uh, yeah. It's nice to make these links to the history because I think there are a lot of similarities. I mean, there is uh, plenty of reasons why the institutions still need to be there to carry on the initiative, uh, no matter how fast and widespread uh, the 
electronic art movement, so to say, has come in between, uh, there's always the new stuff that is arriving and there's always the question of curating, selecting, supporting quality, but also making sure that there is a kind of continuation of uh, experiences and know-how. So I think actually the broader the field becomes, the more important it is already and will be even more so in the future that uh, institutions starting with universities going to museums and of course specially dedicated events, activities and festivals are taking place. And yeah. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you. I just think it's a, a really interesting mm -hmm. conversation to have. Um, yeah. What I know that um, Ars Electronica has just initiated the home delivery program, and that's <laughs> something that I think is worth talking yeah. about also. Yeah, because it also is, uh, at the moment, we are doing this uh, uh, especially for the local audiences as a uh, a supplement for the uh, uh, program from the museum because it's not really possible to visit the museum. Uh, but at the same time, it's a kind of test ground for us to explore strategies and possibilities as well uh, for the festival. And uh, that's definitely also an interesting thing, how to achieve, uh, you know, not to disappear finally, disappear completely in the networks, but actually how to reappear, to emerge out of the networks and uh, still be able to have a local physical manifestation that is rooted in the networks. And I think uh, what we are witnessing right now might really be sort of say, the beginning of a next level of uh, digital uh, revolution in terms uh, where we are finally ending up with a kind of yeah, a very uh, organic combination and fusion of being digital as well as being physical. So finally getting rid of this, that it's either the one or the other. And, right. Uh, I think that's a very interesting challenge for, for the art. And again, something where we can see many examples of how artists have been exploring this and pioneering these ideas already in, in, in very early times. Mm -hmm. No, I think it's, this is an interesting topic and there are important historical precursors to this, including Roy Ascot's formation in 1994 of the mm -hmm. Planetary Collegium as a combined space and place PhD program for yep. artistic education. Um, Another topic that I think could be interesting to address, and this is something that I wrote about gosh, in 2010, um, the role that Ars Electronica has played, not just internationally, but locally in Linz as a important player in, in an economic sort of, there's a, there's a publication, what's it called? Um, beyond creative industries, a way beyond creative industries. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, the role that an art yeah. center like Ars Electronica, and there is no other art center like Ars Electronica, so I, I need to um, kind of <laughs> count that properly. Yeah. Um, nobody, the role that, nobody else was brave enough to <laughs> go into such an adventure. <laughs> 
Right. But I think that there's something that Ars Electronica has played a role somewhat like the Bilbao effect in Linz. Definitely, yeah. As a creative generator and an economic generator in concert with other cultural institutions and the university and your um, industry partners. And I think that that's a story that I th is important to look at both in terms of its history as well as its present and future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's uh, also quite interesting. I mean, even if Linz is a, a very small city or maybe exactly because it's a small city, uh, that such a thing can happen. And, and I think it's an interesting history of cross-fertilization, so to say. It's not just, you know, the influence or the impact that the activities of Ars Electronica had onto the city, but also the other way, how the, the direction that Ars Electronica went was, of course, right. also specifically shaped by the needs and uh, possibilities of the environment here and of the city of Linz. And I think that's a quite interesting thing because uh, very often uh, we are asked this question and we ask it ourselves, you know, why did Ars Electronica actually really go this certain way? Why this, as you said, you know, there is uh, barely another place that is uh, uh, really the way that, that we are acting here. Uh, and that could be good, that could be negative. I think there is positive and negative sides always in this case. But why is it such a, a distinct uh, direction? What is the impact of the city also on uh, the, in general, I think, on the cultural activities? I think that's also important because usually we tend, especially when we come from the arts and culture, we tend to see it the other way that you know we are always influencing the environment and uh, the city and, and, and the audiences but i think uh, arts organization or like any other organization that is really so to say lively is of course constantly by participating in the life of the area in which it uh, acts is of course also constantly prone to uh, influence uh, from the environment that it's uh, acting. And I think it's this bidirectional fusion and sym symbiosis that is actually very interesting, also in terms how to act in, 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 in such situations. That sounds great. I think that that's a really important insight. Maybe that's one of the keys to the success of Ars Electronica is that it did not come with an attitude of trying to impose its vision on its locale, but was open to a bi-directional exchange so that everything is part of this system that's kind of organically evolving together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because, um, which is something that was necessary as a survival strategy. Right. right. When you start something like us electronic, I mean, you always have to imagine 1979, and the guy said, okay, let's do a festival for art, technology, and society. I mean, right. how many people were able to understand a little bit of, of uh, you know, how visionary this was at this time. So it, it needed a, a different strategy. I mean, it's, of course, different when you do this in, in London, Paris, New York, or somewhere, where you have, of course, a much uh, larger audience, a much bigger appreciation for... Um, experimental uh, developments on their own. But if you do this in a small environment like Linz, you have from the very first moment 
you have to prove that you are also useful to the environment. Otherwise, you will never get accepted. And otherwise, uh, the city probably would have decided, well, okay, nice, but let's better do a music con a music festival because this is what we really like and understand. So the need to really justify our existence, uh, of course, in particular in the beginning, because nowadays, of course, many more people understand the value of our doing. But uh, for a very long time, this was uh, a very, it's a burden, of course, it's a pressure. But on the other side, it puts you really in this position uh, where you can create this kind of uh, perforation of your intellectual art and science silos so that you are actually really breathing with uh, breathing the same air than the people and the environment you are acting in. Right. And there are a lot of other in interesting things as yeah. well, uh, in this situation, because one point, of course, was from the very beginning that Ars Electronica actually was created as a bastard. And as a what? As a bastard. A mixture, you know, like bastard is like when... Uh, oh, right, uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> sorry, my English pronunciation is always this typical Upper Austrian version. No, but really like a, a bastard in, in a very classical traditional sense. You know, it, it was not really a child of the art world. It was not really an accepted child of the science world because the university people said, you know, was research. This is not uh, research related what you're doing, this crazy art experiments. And the art yeah. world always told us, well, you know, is this really art what you're doing? You're just playing around with technology. So very much like media art itself, but in particular the organization, Ars Electronica, with this initial statement to say, this is a festival for art, technology and society. Three things that usually don't come together, particularly not in the time when this was started and invented. This created at, uh, this kind of a, a position of really sitting between all the chairs. And for a very long time, this was a very uncomfortable position, but more and more it grew to a very comfortable situation because not being occupied by one of these parents like the art, the science, or uh, entertainment and, and, and political activities from the society. This not only uh, forced us to develop our own position, it also gave us the necessary freedom to define our very own as electronica type of way of how to jump between uh, these areas and more and more how to fuse these areas. I still remember very uh, vividly when, when I started to work for Ars Electronica in 95, 96, we had this more or less like a rule or a strategy that every year we would put the festival more, uh, this year more maybe in the direction of art, the next year more be in the direction, into the direction of technology, and then uh, in the third year more in the direction of a society, and then starting again. Because at this time, jumping between the chairs was a very good strategy. And jumping made us very agile. Jumping was also a nice way because you couldn't be pinned down. Uh, you could always change your face. You could easily reinvent yourself. And then more and more, it really became a situation that instead of jumping between the chairs, symbolically speaking, the chairs, we were building our own uh, 
position between the chairs. And again, symbolically speaking, I think what we were able to build was a table between these chairs so that the people sitting in this area, sitting on these chairs, suddenly had the table and more and more it became a platform. And I think this is really when, when you look at the development of Ask Electronic, I mean, the last five years, in particular with this explosion of program and size, uh, is really the phase where Ask Electronic is mainly a platform. The platform where these three areas can have a very fruitful and meaningful uh, exchange, also controversies, mm -hmm. but more and more uh, the, our role, so to say, is to helping these people to... Uh, bring them uh, together. Right. No, and I think that that bringing together, that role of the festival is so important. Um, I mean, my own personal history, um, Ars Electronica played such a significant role. After my first year of grad school, I went and I worked at Ars Electronica um, just as helping artists organize their exhibitions. I worked there for a few weeks mm -hmm. and and um, it was a total immersion in this world of media art, which was new to me then. And I met so many people and had so many interesting conversations and saw this work. And to be able to, to converge with a community that shares this passion and that is really deeply engaged in this practice and, and the theoretical debates around it, um, it's really so important for um, nurturing a field and for facilitating the growth of artists and scholars and educating the public and, and allowing the work a space to, to breathe and, and take on life. Yeah, definitely. And I think this is again, you know, the history of the past is not so different from the present and probably also from, from the future where we are going. I still remember my own situation in the mid 80s as a young aspiring artist and student, how important it was to go to this festival and suddenly being able to see how many super interesting projects and people all over the world were thinking and working in this field of art and technology. So at this time, it was so important to be a meeting ground for these early adopters and these still very small and young media art communities. But yeah. nowadays, of course, media art is very omnipresent and even more so is the digital society, the, uh, all these uh, issues of uh, our digital world. So now the important thing is to be a meeting place for those people who just don't want to go the mainstream, who are not just you know happy to have Facebook, Amazon and Google, but who are keeping up a responsible wide angle of uh, this perspective towards the uh, digital uh, society. And more and more it now becomes, I think that's uh, even important for the future and for the development, a meeting place and a bridge building institution between those people who are developing alternative ideas, who are not just only fed up with the so there's a mainstream development of our digital world, but who are creative, innovative, motivated and brave enough to work on the alternative models. And it seems throughout the history, this is always rather a small group of people. So that's why we need this international networking so strongly, because if you are not uh, flowing in the mainstream, 
the people like you are distributed all over the world. So I think this international bridge building is a very important role of a festival and this will not change no matter what type of media we have available. Of course, right. it is changing slowly, so to say, the arena where we are working. It's becoming, of course, more and more important, especially what we are uh, experiences nowadays in the COVID crisis is, of course, to utilize uh, the network as well in, uh, in this work of uh, connecting and networking. Yeah, I know my students and I are extraordinarily grateful for the electronic tools that we have that enable us to connect. Even in, a, I'm teaching a course in environmental art this term. And, um, you know, even in the context of really trying to engage with nature, to open our hearts to ourselves, open our hearts to others, open our hearts to the earth. The only way we can do that is through these electronic means. And I mean, it's kind of this strange paradox because the technologies that facilitate this are also part of a, a larger capitalistic machine that has um, done so much damage to the earth. Um, the extraction of, you know, uh, the raw materials with which we build networks, um, mm -hmm. silicon chips and the rare earth metals for conductors and, and things like that. And to say nothing of the use of energy to power servers and all these things. And yet this is what enables us to connect with each other, yeah. to have conversations, to open our hearts to each other, to express empathy, have compassion with others' experiences, and to um, really even, even to express our gratitude for the opportunities that we have to connect through technology. Yeah. I think that's an important point uh, because it puts us even more in a position of... Uh, the responsibility to use these technologies so not just for our fun or our own uh, yeah, entertainment or the way that we can express ourselves, but we have more and more to work on how to use these technologies to help uh, uh, solving the depressing problems that we have, the environmental problems that we have. I mean, still producing concrete for all our high-rise buildings, uh, highways, bridges, and all these kind of things is by far one of the worst uh, uh, issues in terms of uh, emission of CO2 gases and things like this. So it seems uh, one of these uh, really terrible things of human society that building our infrastructure is uh, always connected with uh, damaging our environment and uh, the amount that this has been uh, gaining in, in all these decades or let's say two, almost 300 years now uh, is uh, so, so pressing that we definitely need uh, more ideas and tools than just saying, okay, well, uh, we stop doing what we are doing. I mean, this uh, is a very nice idea maybe, but it won't be realistic. And I think this is what we are witnessing so strongly right now in this uh, situation where so much change has been forced upon us, that if change is just forced upon us, um, it of course leads to change. That's the good thing with the crisis. But on the other side, it's a kind of, easy excuse 
do not come up with your own energy and effort for change. I think that the, the really interesting thing for me here is that, of course, change always is a lot of work. Change is not nice because you, you have to act. You need energy. It exhausts you. So yeah. I think that's why we always hope that the crisis will help us to make these changes that we are not able or willing to do on our own. But I think we have to be careful because if the change is not driven by our own effort and energy, it won't be a lasting change. And it's definitely not a change that we can so to say, participate, that we can control, that we can decide which direction it is going. Right. Well, I think many people, including myself, hope that this change that has been forced upon us offers us a glimpse into other alternatives. So for the first time in, in many decades, the Himalayas can be seen from Punjab because the pollution has lifted. Mm -hmm. And we see that if we regulate our behavior, if we change how we act, the earth can actually uh, recover from the damage that we inflict upon it. So the question becomes, how can we use our own judgment and be active participants in healing the earth in ways that are not just imposed upon us, but come from our own initiative? But ironically, so you know, at the same time this is happening, we got uh, the news a few days ago or weeks ago that now 5G networks are going up to the top of Mount Everest. So I think this is, you know, in all its absurdity, uh, such a good uh, example of, of how we are acting and uh, why we need to do this sort of say, in, in a responsible way. I totally agree that a crisis like this one can give us inspirations it can maybe even, you know, ensure us that change is possible. But then again, I think the important point is that we really embrace the change, the will to change and the will to put effort into it. And what I'm, of course, very afraid of is that all this, uh, what we're seeing right now, will be swiftly destroyed and turned in the other direction when, again, saving the economy is the main topic and the priority of uh, uh, all governments and societies. And therefore, to save our economy, probably we will uh, again make sacrifices that might be even worse than it was before. So the interesting thing, of course, will be how can we, so to say, preserve some of this inspiration, some of this energy that is building up. Also, in terms of, I think what we're seeing right now is very much, again, the importance and the value of fact-based, science-based decisions. I mean, we have never seen before how stupid populist politicians can be actually all over the world and how important and actually life-saving it is to uh, rely uh, on, on science and on fact-based decisions. And maybe also this helps us, you know, to, to gain a new uh, self-esteem and not just always running uh, after the easy decisions and the easy answers. And, and this, I think, is why we need festivals again. This is our motivation, actually, for this year to work hard to make the festival happen, even if we don't know, of course, what will happen in September. I mean, there can't be the wave we are all, the second wave that we are all afraid of, and maybe it's even less possible to do a festival. 
but we think we must not stop to put up the energy. And the most important thing, I think, now in a situation where we see more and more isolation, segregation, and so they closing the borders. I mean, in the beginning, it was like China against USA and Europe. Then it was the individual countries against each other. Now there's all this economic struggling uh, coming. And we yeah. are more and more trying or more and more facing a situation where we isolate ourselves. And isolation, of course, is the worst thing because it stops exchange and communication. And when we are not communicating, we cannot be intellectually productive. But we need this intellectual production. Uh, we need the exchange and the combined expertise of people all over the world to deal with the challenges that are coming. And I think, again, this is the very important role of uh, art and culture organizations, to bring yeah. those people together, to be a network between these oasis in the, in the growing desert, to speak very, uh, yeah. very cliche once no. already. Yeah. yeah, I think that this isolation and the separation, and it's almost a competition. Mm -hmm. And in, in, in a time when what we really need is cooperation and collaboration, and I think that um, media art is such a wonderful example of collaboration across disciplines that conventionally have not really had much of a conversation with each other, mm -hmm. at least not since the Renaissance. And um, maybe that's a role that, that media art can play is to continue to demonstrate the remarkable innovation and invention that can occur when different disciplines, when art and science and engineering and design all intersect and have a conversation with each other, not in a way in which the artist makes the science look pretty or the engineer enables the artist to realize their vision, but where they're really collaborating together in a more open-ended way with some, maybe some shared interests, mm -hmm. but not maybe with any goal in mind to set out with, but just in the in the spirit of experimentation and play and, and curiosity and um, bringing these ideas together and, and making something that could not have been conceived of from any individual perspective or with the tools and techniques of any individual discipline and that exceeds exceeds any of them and all of them that's greater than the sum of its parts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think this is what we see so nicely in, in art history. And of course, you are the foremost expert in, in, in the media art history. But actually, media art, as, as you pointed out, from the very beginning, could only exist on the basis of collaboration. Because without a very few people who were equally so the experienced and, and, and uh, well adverse in art and technology, the majority of projects were only possible from the very beginning based on these uh, collaborations. And this is really nice to, to work in a field where the DNA, so to say, is completely, so to say, uh, yeah, completely based on, on the necessity, but then also in, in, in this long history that, that we have right now with media art, because it is actually a long history, uh, to see how this quality has becoming more and more interesting also to other areas. And I think this is so nicely to see now how many uh, areas, for example, in European Union programs, 
we see even in the Horizon 2020 program, which is the program for uh, economy and research, where there are initiatives popping up where they invite artists, where they support the collaboration of art and science. And what started as, so to say, the individual need of artists uh, has really become something like a very promising uh, tool or strategy to solve some of the bigger problems of our time and our society. Yeah, there, there have been some major initiatives in the U.S. from the National Science Foundation and the, um, the I can't remember which trust, um, really supporting art science collaborations and convening these sort of think tanks of artists and scientists to scheme up proposals together and awarding millions of dollars to support this kind of research. And I think that there is a growing recognition and acceptance among engineers and scientists that collaborations with artists and designers really can give them a, a kind of creative edge that it can be an engine for innovation um, that pushes them out of their comfort zones and inspires new ways of thinking about the very problems they're trying to address. Mm -hmm. um, I'm reminded of uh, a quote by uh, Werner Heisenberg, uh, the Nobel Prize winning physicist, where he, he says, in the history of human thinking, the most fruitful developments frequently take place at those points where two different lines of thought meet. And I think mm -hmm. that, you know, as, as you say, this is part of the DNA of, of media art, um, certainly in, in the foundation of experiments in art and technology by engineer Billy Kluver and artist Robert Rauschenberg and, and Bob Whitman and um, this collaboration between Bell Laboratories, which was at the time the premier research facility in the US, um, scientific research facility with tons of, tons of patents and Nobel Prize winners on its uh, staff and these you know remarkable avant-garde artists in New York. Um, yeah. And this is still uh, amazing when uh, still nowadays, you know, after so many years that we have started to teach media art also in universities, but to see so often that young students are totally surprised and amazed when they hear about uh, these early experiments. And some, of course, have heard about uh, the E-Art uh, movement, but when you then really show them what kind of projects they made and how much of the discourse that we are having right now was already uh, driven and, and conducted by the people uh, at this time, so, so many decades ago, um, this is really an uh, amazing thing. And I think this is very important that we are focusing also in the universities Again, the question, you know, what is the role of institutions? One of these uh, uh, roles is to make sure that we don't lose our own history, because when we know what has been happening already in the field of media art, I think we can be even uh, much stronger. It can uh, really help us not only in terms of inspiration, but also in terms of gaining, again, a kind of self-conscious uh, way how we are uh, presenting ourselves and our activities. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that the role of institutions is really huge and has traditionally been underrepresented in uh, the writing of art history. 
which has always focused on the individual artist, you know, the artist genius, this idea. But um, the role of institutions is, is huge. Without the support of institutions, particularly in this field, which is so, so highly collaborative, and in which until really recently, um, the tools were not accessible to artists. I mean, in the 60s, if you were an artist and you wanted to get access to a computer, you couldn't order it from Amazon. You had to go to a university or a corporation in order to get access to a huge mainframe computer and the, you know, the, the technical support in order to program it on punch cards. And, and even then, um, it was really a strain to imagine what could actually be done. Yeah. And now, you know, I think that these institutions um, continue to play a, a hugely important role and to, to call out and to identify and, and really understand and theorize and historicize the role that institutions have played in supporting uh, media art is, is really important. I think that it, it um, makes a case for the significance of the role of institutions in, in making this possible. Yeah, but in, in a certain way, we have come to a similar situation. I mean, of course, nowadays you can do a lot with all the tools that are here. But again, when it comes now to the latest, so to say, frontier uh, machine learning, um, this again needs supercomputer and by access to powerful uh, 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 equipment. This is not something that uh, an art institution, a museum, or even many art universities wouldn't be able, you know, to really provide uh, the cloud services and, and the, 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 uh, the, the hardware that is necessary to uh, run some of these really advanced uh, programs uh, and uh, do the teaching for uh, a new algorithm that can compose music and things like this. And I think now in a, in a maybe a very similar way as then, uh, the, the role of these organizations also is to be a kind of broker between the artists' community and these big companies. I mean, this was, it seemed at least a certain period that this was going away, but I think uh, we probably never saw it always so clear that even when we were using just our laptops to do something with the internet, I mean, the moment you do something with the internet, you are depending on the very powerful, very expensive and very protected cloud services and big server farms of, of, yeah. the, of the really big uh, monopolies. So yeah. um, I think no, it's still a, a very interesting thing to, to see how this kind of the, 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 the digital revolution to a certain point is achieved in terms of technology. It's there on the planet at least. But now, yeah. so to say, the social, the cultural part of this digital revolution still is something that we are something that we still have to master. Yeah. No, it's interesting you bring up um, the deep learning algorithms and the the really uh, substantial AI um, uh, programming because about a month ago I did for Istanbul seventy four podcasts with Rafik Anadol who. Has participated in Ars Electronica numerous times and has also been uh, uh, working with Google 
in order to advance his his practice beyond the capabilities that he would have working with his own gear um, and to be working with you know uh, deep learning programmers who really understand how this work and also not just that I mean I was surprised to learn that he was part of a team with with uh, programmers and a shaman mm-hmm. and like pushing these things in multiple directions simultaneously yeah I think this this brings us anyway to a very nice uh, interesting area that I thought would be cool to talk with you because you have this close relationship also to people like Roy Escott and I think in a in a certain way is for a long time a, a very important role for media art also in terms of its social or even social political impact was to so to say prepare and help society to cope with this new rules of the digital world. And so to say, important part was bringing the digital to life, being, so to say, helping uh, the, the, the digital to come to life and, and get into our society. But of course, now I think even more important role for media art is to also reintroduce, not as a step backward, not in terms of going back, but reintroducing as a forward strategy reintroducing the organic, the analog, the physical thing. I mean, there is a lot of these things happening, of course, in the communities of artists who work with biotechnologies. But I think also what we are just seeing right now, I mean, we are now, all our life is reduced to what we can do online. And of course, no matter where you are and to whom you talk, everybody starts to long for physical experience again. And I think yeah. this can really lead to a very interesting next level of digital life where we don't see these two things as uh, 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 oppositions to each other, but where we find ways how to meaningfully uh, combine them. And I think in, 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 in combination also with what you address, the importance of the uh, environmental uh, problems of climate change, we need to find a new appreciation of nature, a new appreciation of the organic, of the living, of the analog, but again, as I say, not in a, in, a, in a retro way where we try to get away from what we have right now, but as a forward strategy, strategy to overcome the limitations that we have right now. Yeah. No, I think that this is a really interesting question, and I can't think of, I mean, Yeah, Roy is a great example of an artist who has always brought together these different realms of experience. I mean, even in the early 60s, bringing together I Ching hexagrams and scatter plot diagrams of quantum probability and analog waveforms and computer programming, binary notation, and seeing parallels between these different ways of of um, making sense of things, of, of understanding, of creating meaning. And I think that at this moment when we're really trying to bridge the physical and the, and the, the material and the immaterial, um, and this is, this is something that's been going on. I'm, I'm just thinking of you know, the early, around 1970 or 72, um, Lucy Lepard and 
wrote a book called Six Years, The Dematerialization of the Art Object. I mean, artists have been experimenting with dematerialization for decades and decades. And how do we see dematerialization and materialization not as opposites, but as, as part of a continuity, as part of, you know, this this flow of things, not as oppositions, but, and how do we actualize that in our lives now when we're sheltering in place where we're connected through network, but we're still living, breathing beings with hearts that are beating and craving connection with others and physical connection with others. Um, one of the things that I've done in, in one of my classes that was surprisingly successful, um, and this was inspired in part by the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Buddhist uh, scholar, practitioner, and also by a program that's going on at the Rubin Art Museum, where they have daily offerings. And the Rubin Art Museum in Chelsea, New York, focuses on collections of a collection of art from the Himalayas. And they have these daily offerings with daily meditations that are inspired by works in the collection. And the meditation, of course, involves um, breath work. Mm -hmm. and when we breathe, we get in touch with our bodies. We become grounded. We slow down. We connect with ourselves. And we did an exercise in class, and, and Thich Nhat Hanh talks about the importance of practicing meditation with others, that when we meditate as a collective, it expands our practice. It's not just an additive thing, but we, we create this community, uh, and we, we somehow harmonize with each other. And I felt that we were able to do this via Zoom, where I led my students on a guided meditation and we all were in our own individual space, but we were also all connected. And this is something that Roy Ascot talked about in connection with his early experiences with telematic art, where he felt that people were part of this collective consciousness, that it was like a precursor to what we call hive mind or things like that, where there was a sum that was greater than the parts and that the outcome could not have been imagined from the constituent elements. And I think that artists can continue to push these limits of joining space and place, of physical being and remote connectivity joining the two in ways that expand our experience of connection and place. Yeah, I think that's a very good description of this kind of interesting uh, field where the, this kind of sensitivity of, of art and artists when they are working with these topics, where this really becomes very powerful because Basically, these are things uh, that are elements or that are uh, embedded in the structures of our digital reality, of our networked reality. But you have to be able to sense it. You have to be able to see it behind uh, the surface. And I think even more now where the visible surface of our digital world 
is mainly a corporate world. I mean, we have now young generations who have never seen a world not only without digital technology, but who have never seen and experienced a world without the corporate commercial digital reality. I think this is something that our generation, I think we are pretty much the same age. I mean, we have witnessed in our lifespan this passing over. And we have experienced some of this time where this infrastructure could be seen in a certain way and you know, with a certain virginity. Uh, many people now say, okay, well, this were these naive times of thinking about the global village. I'm happy that I was part of these naive movements because I think believing uh, and also working on ways how to make the best out of it and, and to, to understand that these structures can be used in a different way. There is no law of nature that digital technologies have to be used in the way as we see it right now with uh, the rules that have been developed by the commercial interests of the, of the big global companies. And I think yeah. a certain power for utopia or my people think it's naivete. I have no problem with this kind of naivete as long as it has this utopian power. And I think mm -hmm. this is uh, what is so important because then we can start to see these interconnections also between the different expressions of our world and of our being. And of course, the yeah. organic one is uh, um, probably the strongest. I mean, this is what we are based upon. It's uh, 200,000 years, as they say, since the Homo sapiens uh, appeared on this planet. And this is definitely much more important than the maybe uh, 50 or 60 years of computing that we have. Yeah. Um, I wanted to get back to something that you were saying and tie together some things that have been kind of percolating in my mind as we've been talking. This was the idea um, that you just brought up about you, there's no way that there's no natural way that a technology is designed to be used. And Rafael Lozano Hemmer has this beautiful term, perverting technological correctness. Mm -hmm. To pervert technological correctness, to take a technology that was marketed to be used in a certain way by say Microsoft or Amazon or Google or, or Apple or whatever, and to undermine that, to challenge that, to use it in some other way, to open up the possibilities of that technology in um, unexpected ways. And, and um, pitch bending is one uh, mm -hmm. example of that. And there, there are many examples, but I think that artists are really good at questioning uh, things and taking something out of the box and, and rewiring it. Like the, the Barbie liberation um, organization is a good yeah. example of that. <laughs> taking the Barbie dolls and the, the Ken dolls and yeah. taking the, or the, I guess it's a, an army doll and taking their voice boxes out and switching them. So Barbie yeah. says, you know, in a man's military voice, all right, let's get our guns and raid the enemy camp. And then the military doll says, oh, in, in, a, in a Barbie voice, I just don't know what I'm going to wear for dinner tonight. <laughs> and um, just really forcing people to think out of the box. Um, I yes. think that that's a really important role that artists, artists can play. Yeah. And the other thing that you were saying is, um, the way, and, and I'll, I'll refer to Jack Burnham's uh, 
notion, and he, he builds on McLuhan as artists as artists as the radar of the future, the do line. Um, Burnham thinks about art as a psychic dress rehearsal for the future. And I'm very interested, as I know you are, Gifried, in the way that artists work with technological media in order to envision alternative futures and give us a little taste of them in the present. And I think that that's something that some of these early telematic projects that were at Ars Electronica, like the World in 24 Hours that Robert Adrian organized and Ray Ascot and others participated in, using these telecommunications media as a forum to allow people to experience what is now mundane uh, in social media, to participate in collectively um, building something together uh, remotely, um, collaborating uh, in a global way, text in a planetary fairy tale. But I think that to join these things together from a critical perspective, to envision the future, but in a way that perverts technological correctness, to give us a taste of a future, but in a way that doesn't gloss it over as something to be consumed as a commodity, but something to be created with a very um, critical mind and with compassion for others and for the earth. Uh, and I think that that's something that, that is really important and that institutions can help cultivate. Um, how can we create art that gives us a taste of the future but is very mindful and critical of the uh, corporate and institutional forces that play such a significant role in producing the products and in, in actually extracting things from the earth and polluting the environment to build that future. Mm -hmm. I think that an uh, interesting point here is that this subversive strategy of art that you were addressing, there are so many great examples like the yes man doing the the fake new york times when uh, uh, the uh, barack obama uh, uh, election happened and this kind of thing so uh, endless uh, great examples and one nice thing is just there is no other area where subversion is so joyful and makes so much fun than actually in art and i think it's also an interesting alliance that in particular in media art uh, it was from the very beginning an important point also to deal with the potential of fake and manipulation that comes with electronic media. I mean, they started, of course, before the computer. We know this from uh, photography, uh, where it started that you could easily sort of say, change uh, realities afterwards. But the more that digital technologies became perfect and better, the more, of course, uh, faking things and manipulating things became a very important part of our everyday cultural reality. And I think this is a very good example because these projects were on the one side putting up a very interesting and important critical position. But at the same time, they were promoting to utilize, to own these possibilities also for yourself. So subversion, not just as a fight against something, but also as a measurement, as activity to empower 
communities. And I think this is a, a really interesting uh, topic. Uh, I'm sure in the, in the future historians will look uh, very carefully, even more at this period, that how uh, the, 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 the manipulation powers of technology also became part of a culture. And I think uh, if we have any chance to deal with this increasing problem of not only fake reality, but manufactured realities, uh, then it is because artists have been showing us uh, how we can understand this and also have been doing projects that help us to, so to say, gain our own position in it. And I think yeah. a very important point of what artists have been doing in this time, also again going back to, to Escott or, or Bob Adrian and these people. I think this was extremely political work actually they did because they were claiming the right to settle in this new territory also for us as civil society. At a time where electronic media was either state controlled or uh, owned by big commercial corporations. They started as artists and said, okay, well, who cares the quality of a fax machine or a slow scan TV? We mm -hmm. want to work with it. And I think in, in, in this way, they became like, you know, uh, advocates for civil society to, to take up or to, to, yeah, to ask for the right to participate in the development, in the creation, in the design of these uh, new realities. And uh, this is really, I think, something we cannot be uh, grateful enough to these artists because at a certain point, I think, you know, what a sacrifice it must have been for people like Roy, Bob, and, and many others at this time, not to do something that was very easy to sell or very trendy at this time. I mean, many artists used computer and technology to just do what they always did, making visual arts, for example. But then yeah. there were these pioneers who said, well, maybe the responsibility of an artist is now to really go investigate and explore, take away the curtain, and therefore opening, so to say, the, this technology, making it accessible also for the for the society and i think this yeah. is a extremely important work that so far i think has been underestimated because we are so used just to look at the product of art and of course or well we are also used now to look at the process of art but i think what is also very important is to think of the impact of art uh, and uh, i think looking at these early experiments in the 80s uh, this has been really very brave pioneering work yeah, no, I agree. And, and it comes out of, I think, an ethos um, connected with the whole earth catalog, you know, tools for building a future that, you know, a DIY mentality where these tools, these technologies, these ideas are not just for corporations, they're for everyone. Yeah. And we can build our own reality using these tools. and. Mm -hmm and uh, Theodore Nelson and Computer Lib. I mean, that these are tools for empowering individuals and, and communities. Um, I think that you're right. That's really, really important, an important lesson from early media art. Yeah. I think also for you know, the future of art history, it will be super interesting to look at differences. Uh, for example, how in the United States, 
uh, artists and the art world has dealt with this and how it has been happening here in Europe. Because I think, as you said, this whole Earth uh, catalog and the Stuart brand, and this is so typical American, US American for us here uh, from the European perspective. While you see, of course, that uh, the way how uh, uh, Roy and Bob were, were working, of course, uh, it's a very uh, different category at this time. And I think this uh, is a very good, uh, why I'm saying this is because what we always have to see again is how strong the impact of environment and culture is, of course, on the way how technology is shaped, but also, of course, the way how artists are working. I think we often tend to see the artists as, you know, entities or beings almost outwardly and then looking at the world and having some inspirations and ideas. I think particularly when it comes to this exploration of new um, possibilities, new realities and new technologies, we have to understand that the work of, especially the work of pioneering artists, is really very much for themselves those kind of they're a part, the fabric of the culture they are usually embedded. And I think this is something that I'm always uh, uh, very, you know, uh, deeply impressed when I see artists who are brave enough and really taking the risk to think of new directions and new steps because we have to say most of them are not really, so to say, acknowledged, at least in their present time when they are living. It's a very hard uh, stance also for artists. And that could be another good argument why festivals, museums, art universities will be necessary also in the future. Yeah. Cool. How many hours can we continue to talk? <laughs> <laughs> it's such an interesting field. Uh, Especially yeah. when it comes to this crossover from the art world into society. And I have to yeah. admit this is something that I have been very, very interested, sometimes even more than, so to say, just the artistic production, which is not doesn't mean that this is not extremely important. I mean, this is the basis of everything. Right. But I think what's so interesting to observe in recent time is this the mechanisms, how art can create some impact, convey some impact out of the world of art itself into yeah. other areas of our society. I think this is something that is, of course, art always is asking for. And I think art, uh, a role that art always has been also taking over. Mm. But I think in, in our present time, this is a, a very particular uh, strong field. And, yes. Uh, yeah. Well, this is one of the reasons I find this area, this broad, you know, expanding area of our practice um, so interesting and, and found it interesting initially because it wasn't just a formal exercise. It wasn't some kind of in-joke and in discourse about art and modernism and postmodernism, but it was really engaged with thinking about the future, about engaging with the vernacular tools of our time in order to envision a future. It was engaged in a social interaction to change the way we think about art as an object with a meaning embedded in it to be comprehended, understood in like a one-way communication model by the viewer and to, to shift that around and to see 
the artist, the artwork, and the audience as part of the system that creates meaning together. I think you know these are these are fundamentally political shifts that change our relationship to art and to the artist and to each other. That empower us to be not just these passive recipients of meanings, but active creators of meanings. And I mean, we were always active creators of meaning in works of art, um, as Bart, you know, talks about readerly and writerly texts, or, or um, I mean, these these things were in 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 circulation as ideas in the fifties and sixties. But I think that interactive art, electronic art, new media art, net art, and its extensions really make that a much more explicit aspect of the work and our experience of it. And I think that that really does change things. Um, it, it changes our consciousness and our expectations about what we want from art, what role we expect to play with art, and what what role we expect to play in society. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is of course something where with all our excitement, of course, uh, we also have to see at the moment in a very dramatic way, how less society seems to value art and culture. I mean, when we look and I think that's the same all over the world again, when we look at uh, the way how these uh, measurements against uh, uh, the coronavirus, the spread of the coronavirus have been conducted um, and how much thought is given and also money is invested in saving uh, the economy, the companies and the big ones as well as the small ones and how few of this money goes actually to the artists, to the uh, people who produce this uh, extreme important value of our society, then it's uh, definitely a very frustrating situation because yeah. uh, it really shows us again that probably uh, we are not seen as important as we actually are. I don't know how this is happening in the United States at the moment, but I think it's uh, probably not much different to Europe. Well, I mean, getting back to your query about how media art developed differently in different his different national contexts, I mean, it's very different in Europe in general, where there's a much stronger history of central funding, government funding, regional funding, national funding, EU funding. We don't have that in the U.S. Um, there's very little uh, state funding for the arts. And so artists who wanted to get into media art really had to gravitate to the institutional context of universities. Mm -hmm. and or, or to come to Europe. And work that? Or go to Europe, yeah. Or both. Yeah. And um, yeah, I wrote about this in an essay in Leonardo called Artists in Industry in the Academy, Interdisciplinary Research Collaborations, which does somewhat of a, a comparison between the US and Europe. And for, I mean, now artists in the U.S. are, especially performing artists, are really, really struggling because all of their gigs have been canceled. They have no source of income. Musicians, dancers, other performers, they get paid by performing. They make very, I mean, recording artists make very little money selling albums, <coughs> publishing rights. So if you're not performing, you're not making money. And the, the smaller festivals are also really struggling. 
Um, so yeah, all the festivals have been canceled. The the venues um, where artists perform are struggling. Um, I really don't know what's going to happen, and I hope that I hope that they are going to get some help. There is an or organization called Art artfunding.org, something like that, that is providing some funding for artists who are affected by the COVID-19 crisis. But what what's it like in, in the Austrian context, in the new context in terms of government funding for artists as the crisis takes away their livelihood? Well, I mean, in the same way, of course, we have a better situation because there is not only some uh, much better a, a public system for for the arts, but again, when it comes to uh, freelancing artists who are not part of uh, ensembles or institutions, it's uh, also in, in incredibly uh, difficult. Um, and it's not only I have to say also from our point a problem for small and independent festival, but it's also a big problem for for the major art organizations because. I mean, you have much more stuff, you have much more monthly costs. And uh, yeah. if you don't start to, you know, fire your people, then, of course, uh, uh, you immediately get uh, also in, in very big financial troubles. I mean, we have a, a somehow working support system for this. So like in our case, we don't have to fire anybody. There is this... Uh, model of short-term work that is very strongly subsidized uh, uh, by the government that, that helps a lot. But then again, for the people outside of institutions, for freelance artists, it's really terrible. And when you see the amount of money that is provided to help them, you know, it's like 400 euros that you get and then you should survive for several months based on this. I mean, it's just laughable. <laughs> Um, no. So um, this is also a, a very dramatic situation. And I mean, we are used to see it this way because it's always, art always, so to say, is the lowest in, 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 in the hierarchy of uh, importance of uh, societies and governments. But I think that this will really become a big problem only in terms of the very dramatic uh, economic problem for the individual artists right now. But if this thing is going on for a longer period, then in one way or another it will. Because when the virus is gone, we still will have, you know, empty budgets all over the planet. Uh, and yeah. uh, th this means that really for a long time, uh, we are lacking the contribution of uh, art, culture, and I think uh, quite uh, in a similar way with science, as long as it's not medical science or pharmaceutical science, which of course is now in, in, in high demand, but everything that is not seen as immediately relevant is now really in a, in a very uh, a difficult uh, situation. And uh, we will have to deal with this for quite a long time. I mean, this is why we started now with our so-called home delivery system, because it's still not really open to uh, possible to open the museum in a meaningful way. But now with right. this, at least we have a system where we can not only show the content of our center, but also every week invite artists to perform from the center. And uh, I think this is really important thing. Uh, in 10 days or so, two weeks, we are starting with a 
bike in art cinema. So we will set up a big LED wall in front of the museum. And by then, I think at the moment, it's only 10 people who are allowed to come uh, together okay. on one place. But nevertheless, at least we can show uh, interesting, uh, that's mainly for artists here from the city and our region, also to give them uh, a possibility to be active, but also to make sure that at least to a certain amount uh, artistic production remains visible in the public space. Well, I look forward to seeing um, the home delivery of Ars Electronica, especially when there is more content in English, because I'm afraid that yeah. my German comprehension is not very good. No, but uh, this, uh, I have to apologize for this, but we, we decided to start with mainly uh, to service the local audiences, uh, because that's also usually the role of the museum, uh, and also to use this as a kind of trial period the first two weeks to uh, get more uh, so to say sufficient in the way and, 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 and do it in a more professional way but there is already a roadmap how to extend uh, to uh, international services as well uh, and there will be special programs for example in Czech language for our neighboring country um, and uh, of course there will be an increasing program uh, in English and in particular we will start with a better announcement so that you know in advance already what is uh, uh, in English language and what is only in German language. But for the moment, I can definitely recommend to connect to home delivery service again on Friday, every Friday evening at 7 p.m. We have a music concert, uh, visualized uh, piano music. Uh, and this Friday will be an evening dedicated to Philip Glass who is a very close friend of Dennis Russell Davis, who is uh, one of the pianists uh, playing. And uh, there will be also the opportunity after the concert. So these are short concerts, 30 minutes music, and then um, depending 15, 20 minutes, the possibility to join a video conference with the artists. Uh, and then it always closes with a little surprise a final piece uh, that will be then the surprise of the evening. So please tune in to make some advertisement on Friday, 7 p.m. Wonderful. I'll, I'll try to come to that. Um, Dennis Russell Davies, of course, is a great virtuoso. And Philip Glass, um, I guess Philip Glass was, got on my radar with Koyana Skatsi. <laughs> the brilliant uh, film about life out of balance. Um, yeah. Yeah, something Great. that is quite timely nowadays also. And uh, we are absolutely. Very, yeah. Yeah, I saw a contemporary kind of treatment inspired by Koyana Skatsi. Um, uh, yeah, I think he really created a kind of meme or a style for this kind of uh, also visual documentaries of uh, the Anthropocene and the shape of our planet. I mean, there are so many, fortunately now, there are many great uh, movies out there, uh, if it's from Portinsky or Jan Artus Bertrand. And when you listen at the soundtracks for these uh, films, they always have this kind of Koenigsegg style of, of music. I think that's really one of the things that uh, Philip Glass uh, 
really did very well. But beyond this, he's really one of the, I think, most eminent composers of our time. I mean, he, uh, all his career, the way how he started out of this field of minimal music and how he really coined the style of a whole generation. Uh, yeah. And what I think is so amazing, even now, uh, beyond his uh, 80th birthday, he's still so super productive. I mean, it's uh, crazy how much music he is actually producing. Producing, sorry to say it like this, but uh, of course composing. But then again, it's not only... Uh, it's not just you know uh, enough to compose it. You have to finalize it. You have to put it out. You have to make sure it is published as sheet music and 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 recorded. So it's really great to see the the energy that he is bringing. Well, I, I look forward to tuning into that, and I look forward to hearing music live sometime in the hopefully yeah. not too distant future because in the Brooklyn yeah. House, which is always such a treat to visit. Yeah. And actually, there will be the, the surprise of Friday evening will be actually a piece of music from Philip Glass that you definitely haven't heard ever before. Oh, That's cool. As much as I'm <laughs> willing to say at the moment. All <laughs> right. In Sounds like a world premiere. Well, you will see on Friday. <laughs> okay. Or here on Friday. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much for this great conversation, Gerfried. I hope we get to continue this conversation another time. Yes, thank you very much. I mean, in particular in these times where we are so much isolated in our offices or at home, it's really a great opportunity to also have enough time to uh, make such great conversations and, and tackle so many interesting topics that yeah. you brought up in this talk. Thank you.